Lori Houston's News for the Heart is dedicated to helping you give a voice to your own soul. Our hearts have the power to free us from pain and the struggles that keep us from awakening to our true essence. Join Lori now as we delve into our heart and soul to find the path that will open us to the possibilities and lead us to the life we love to live. Hey, good afternoon. This is News for the Heart. I'm really excited today because I have a new author, and I just found out that it's really new. In fact, it's not out in the bookstores until October. The book is called Peace and Where to Find It, and the author is Christopher Papadopoulos. And I have to say, you know, I haven't I haven't been reading a lot of books lately, and part of it is because of the information that's in this book, but I was really impressed. So Christopher, I am so excited to have you on. I have a feeling we're going to do more than just one show because this information is so vital. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's uh, good speaking with you, Lori, and hello to everyone listening. Mm-hmm. So what I loved was kind of your journey there because I think we can all identify with the seeker and that search for peace. So why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, how this all came about for you? Yes. Um, I think like others who are spiritual seekers, for me in the 90s, that's when most of my uh, search for something greater than myself, so to speak, uh, began. I had a few uh, interesting metaphysical experiences playing around with uh, meditations and visualizations and after these experiences, uh, I realized that there was much more to life than what that what normally appears. Uh, but during uh, this path in the 90s, I could sort of call myself a new age kid. I was in my <laughs> 30, 30s at the time, but I was considering myself a new age kid and very interested in, in Reiki and energy healing and crystals and shamanic paths. And it's to this day, it's all still good and interesting and, and, and can be useful. But it was coming into the late 90s that uh, I was beginning to feel that still not quite uh, finding what I'm looking for. And after a fasting retreat in the Bavarian Alps in 2000, um, I had, uh, I guess, one of those moment of clarity experiences where I was lying down uh, in this hotel room and looking around and everything I looked at essentially spoke, so to speak, spoke the word God back to me. The doorknob was God, the wall was God, the bed was God, my body was God. Um, And I could feel the depth and the sacredness in everything around me. And after that experience, I came back to Canada. And it was just about a month or two after that, at the end of 2000, that I discovered Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now. And after reading that, I said, well, I knew this is it. I'd always been sort of interested in, 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 in Hindu and Buddhist philosophies, for example, but never too interested um, that I would really want to pursue it like others uh, had. Until that point, it made perfect sense to me. And I realized that I had to become much more disciplined in uh, inhabiting the present moment. And it was over the next few years that... Uh, identification with this voice in the head, this me and my story character began to fall away. My attachment to the past and the future fell away. 
And in the fall of 2003, I basically woke up one morning and walked into the kitchen where my mother was and told her, you know what, I'm not searching anymore. It was just this powerful sense of permanent peace that's been with me ever since uh, in the background had began to began to dominate my uh, awareness and make me realize, yes, I was not the voice in the head and with this personal individual past or these uh, wants and desires for the future. Uh, I was connected to all things. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of it. You know, we often, we get in the seeker, and we're going to talk about this more later, but we get into that seeker place and we keep seeking everything outside of us. Like we keep looking for the answer that has to be out there somewhere. And, and it just keeps 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 us focused on something outside of us instead of you know bringing us back into now bringing us back into our body bringing us into that that those moments of clarity that we've all experienced and I am not where you are but I I fully expect to be there <laughs> um why don't you talk about your definition of ego, because ego's brought up a lot in this book, and I do believe we all sort of have our own ugh, definitions of it. Yes, um, of course, it's been used uh, for a long time, even yeah. going back to the times of, of, of course, the Sigmund Freud, etc., and uh, even before that. And so, yes, sometimes there's some confusion. Um, I make it clear in the book that I'm using uh, the word ego. Um, to describe this voice in the head that pretends to be us, this me and my story character, um, the bundles of, of thoughts and emotions and behavior patterns that form this sense of me. This is me based on my memories and based on my wants and desires and beliefs. All of these are thought forms. And um, now part of the ego, we can say, is... Also, that parts of part of us that keeps us safe, because we do have to have some sense of individuality in order to be safe in this world. If we always felt connected to all things, we can easily get hurt just walking into traffic. If we feel well, I'm part of the road and part of the cars, and uh, we have to have at least some sense of individuality for us to function as unique expressions of this undying awareness that we are. But it's one thing to have a sense of individuality to keep us relatively safe and functioning in a practical way on a day-to-day -day basis. It's one thing to have that and one thing to over-identify with that sense of individuality to the point where we have on the planet that everyone believes we are all separate and we just live in our heads and we have our own, quite, our own separate points of view. We're not connected to anything else. We cannot feel it. And we just begin to believe that we are this ongoing, incessant thinking in our heads. Yeah, it's so true. And I'm so glad you made that distinction because, I mean, I, I struggle with this. And obviously, you do talk about part of the struggle in your book, um, you know, part of that uh, thinking that you will be detached and have no passion. That's part of the struggle. But I, I also, I guess I believe that I totally understand the identity aspect. And I, I, I so can see how those stories of me, you know, really are filtering out, you know, and creating so much struggle and so much pain. And yet there's a part of me that doesn't actually feel that the ego 
hmm, will ever necessarily go away. It's like, like you said, I think there's a part of it that's necessary for us to live in this physical world, that even though we're spiritual beings um, having a physical experience, we're also human beings. And yes, that human aspect of us, wow, it really, it, it really is what's, you know, creating all the struggle and pain and, you know, allowing us to perceive things from a false identity. But there's a part of me that I guess I believe that the ego will grow with us, not the, not the spiritual bypass part, because I, we've all seen that as well, but that it can actually evolve and our awareness of safety and our awareness of, you know, our physical being um, can also grow. I mean, obviously, if we are completely in the now, that aspect of safety would probably be so much more heightened anyway. It would, it would, I would imagine that you would, um, you would be so much more aware if there was anything coming at you that would pose any threat or danger. Yes, exactly. And so there's, it's, we don't have as much of a need to, um, rely on a, you know, this thought form, this character we have, we carry around in our heads, for example, it, it's just in the moment. And so in that sense, we can say that ego, um, some aspects of that uh, sense of individuality continues to grow with us because as the old uh, spiritual saying says, before awakening, you know, chop wood, carry water, after awakening, chop wood, carry water. <laughs> we have to be, we, we come up, come down from our mountains, so to speak, and uh, we re-enter the world and we interact with it in a new way once we've awakened to our true nature. And there has to be some sense of being aware of our individuality. And so that part of us, in a sense, can grow with us. Uh, and what I will, as I do in the book, and as other teachers talk about when we talk about ego dissolving, etc., they really are emphasizing not obliterating any sense of, at all sense of individuality, but it's getting rid of this attachment to this story of me that we have. For example... Um, I still respond to the name Chris or Christopher and and talk and eat and do everything that everyone else does and in, enjoy life and respond to the things that happen. But there is this permanent sense of undying awareness in me um, that feels like this vibrant, intelligent peace, which is why I associate this consciousness, the pure consciousness, or the pure awareness that is, for me, the source of all forms. Um, I call it peace. It's just another word we can use to describe what is ultimately indescribable. Um, so that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, and I also think, you know, many people kind of describe this energy or this beingness and they can come up with different names to it, whether that's unconditional love, whether it's just being as in capital B E and I N G like it's, it's using the word peace. We can probably identify more with that definition than any others, because whenever we talk about unconditional love, we rarely have enough examples in our lives to of experiences of unconditional love. It's kind of a concept that we want to achieve, but we don't really know how to. Where peace, we've all had examples of 
that sense of peace coming over us. And yes, for many of us, we haven't been able to um, hold it for any length of time, but we all know what that means. So using the concept peace to describe this um, infinite energy that's available to us is probably a more um, tactile way of us understanding it. Because I think, you know, we try to you know, define it in different ways. And you use God a lot in this, and and I want to get to that. But, um, I mean, God is peace. I mean, it's, it, it is this energy of oneness. It is this energy that lies beneath this voice in our head, the software, as you call it, that is this false sense of self, this story of me. And, and we are so, we really... Mm, we give so much power to that story, to our perceptions, to our beliefs, and it, to, to the point where we are so miserable, um, but yet we also know the difference. We can't, we do, most of us have had some type of experience where, whether it's through meditation or in your book, you talk a lot about body awareness, which is so important, but we, you know, this voice in our head that is this false um, sense of self versus the authentic self, peace is kind of a cool way to define it for us because we know what peace is like. Yes, it's a little less abstract than even things like universal love, mm-hmm. which um, uh, which can be romanticized or idealized mm-hmm. and seems like something we want but so far away from us. And given the levels of personal suffering on the planet and as individuals, um, peace is an important way to um, reach people and make them understand that it is so very close to us, and in essence, it is what we are. And when you at least intellectually begin to realize that, then it's something you can also shoot for um, in your practice. Um, of course, I emphasize in the book that it's we're not really you know, seeking it out so much as turning our attention to the here and now where peace is. This, the room that everyone listening um, is in now or the public space they're in now, that space is saturated with peace right now. The peace, capital P peace, that we all want for the world and the peace that we want for ourselves, the inner peace that we're all searching for, um, to finally be at rest, to finally be no longer dissatisfied, to finally feel fulfilled, we begin to rest in our fulfillment, and that is peace. It is also it also saturates every part of uh, every cell in our body and all the space in our body. All our bodies are ninety nine point nine nine percent and more uh, empty space, but this space is full. It's full of a uh, of a vibrant, intelligent awareness which feels like peace. So it is closer to us than our breath. It is closer to us than our desires or feelings. It is already here, and we can be reassured by that. That it's a question of tuning into the present moment, to finally finding the peace that we are all looking for as a planet, and of course as individuals. Mm. Yeah, it, it it it's a good concept because we, as I said, we all have you know some examples. Now, I love that you say the most important part of this, well, we're all responsible for peace, but that the most important part is that personal peace will lead to world peace. Yes. 
I think that's, you know, we all seem to think we have to do something outside of us. Obviously, you know, to live in this physical world, we do have to do things. (laughs) But we always think that it's outside of us, that we're always seeking, striving, doing to, you know, to help us grow or evolve when really it's about choices. It's all personal things and therefore it's all things that we can do. Like it's all things that we are in charge of instead of it being outside of us. Yeah, this is very important and um, powerful that we don't have to feel powerless in the face of what's happening in the world or, or in the face of what's happening in our own lives. Um, we have all the power and all the control over this. Merely a question. It is so simple yet not easy, as it is often said in the spiritual path. It's so simple because it's a question of just turning our attention to the here and now. Um, but it's easier said than done, of course, because there is so much resistance uh, when we do so. But by doing that, and realizing that we don't have to feel, okay, we need legislation, we need to have uh, government to do this, we need to have large movements that do that. It all really does begin with us. And when we inhabit our true peaceful nature, we begin to emanate this peace as well. There's a transmission of peace that uh, travels the planet. So just by being off you know, in the woods by yourself and inhabiting your own peace, you are also uh, helping the frequency of rising, raising the frequency of peace on the planet. Of course, uh, when we come to know ourselves as peace, and that everyone else, including the most odious person we can think of, at their deepest essence is also peace, we also develop a compassion um, for the world, and we see the world differently, and we also behave in the world differently. And of course, then we do begin to develop the relationships and movements that do make um, physical change uh, in the world. So it is concomitant, concomitant. It does happen together. Right. And that's all we have to, but I think it's so empowering to know that the only thing we'd have to do is to, to work on ourselves. I mean, we hear it over and over again, but we get so caught up in this, this false identity or this story of me with our, you know, filters on our beliefs, thoughts, and emotions. And I love how you've identified emotions. I think that's a really important piece of this book because it, you, you really bring such important um, aspects of our lives in such simple terms. And I think the way you identified emotions and how it's resistance and how, You know, really the only thing we have to do is just to actually accept the emotions or to go into the emotions and actually feel the emotions. But we're always so afraid to accept and feel the emotion because we think, we think what? That it's, it's going to overtake us, that we're going to get lost in it. Um, I mean, there's so many things, but I love how you talk about emotions because I think it's it's just an important piece of why we don't have peace. Yes, absolutely. Um, When we go deep enough into our emotions, we realize ultimately all they are are phenomena in the body. They are energy 
under pressure. And we're Love that. Trying, trying to find ways to release that pressure. And of course, we often, we often seek outside of ourselves to alleviate that pressure and that, uh, that stress and upset that come from emotions. Um, yeah, we use distractions. We think somehow that by distracting us, we won't have to feel uncomfortable. Absolutely. And, and so, of course, it's understandable that we do so because this voice in the head, this ego that is a form itself, cannot help but do anything other than search the world of form. It is futile to do so. Um, so it seeks out the rest, well, the only thing that it knows, the rest of the realm of form to try to alleviate this suffering. But of course, it's futile because it's by going into our formless nature that we can uh, dissolve this energy under pressure and relieve the pressure. We create space around the pressure. Hmm. Yeah, most of the time, this is where our addictions come from. And our initial addiction is the addiction to thinking. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. It's kind of amazing when you think about, (laughs) I just keep saying the word think, Um, but (laughs) our culture is so identified with thinking, analyzing. Um, I mean, look at our education system. Look at, you know, how our culture deals with any crisis. It's, you know, see a psychiatrist, see a psychologist, even, I mean, it's, I use more intuition now when I do my counseling, but actually most of the time I'm just kind of giving people space and holding that space for them so that they actually have somebody who will listen. But we need to be able to understand that, you know, all the thinking, analyzing, reactions, all the things that we generally do take us away from what we're really wanting. And we all want to feel good. We all want to feel peace. We all want, in your words, to feel God. And I mean, that's a powerful thing to think about or to contemplate or to feel and experience. (laughs) It is. Um, Part of the reticence, of course, is our thoughts about God and what we imagine God to be and how could I, some small, insignificant me, have anything to do with something so vast and great and powerful as God, etc., etc. And I'm going to assume, because you're in Montreal, um, that you come from a Catholic background? Is that... Oh, yes, you're also Greek, so it would be Greek Orthodox, probably. Way back um, in... in, um, through my parents and, and grandparents, um, but never have, have I been um, practicing, Religious. so to speak. So in my lifetime, sort of grew up much more officially Protestant, which was basically in, in, in at a, during these years of growing up, meaning, well, not very religious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we just kind of use it as a, as a placeholder for what we believe. And uh, uh, But I'm familiar with the other, uh, with, there's there's still my, some family in Greece that are Orthodox. And uh, on, there's also Polish on the other side oh. of the family, which, of course, is Polish Catholic. And yes. um, I think the apparently... The guilt. Yes, <laughs> yes. It, it is funny. and And, you know, growing up, Close to Montreal, I'm going to assume also that a lot of your friends were likely Catholic. I mean, it is a normal, um, I mean, Quebec is very Catholic based. So culturally, you know, that that religious 
dogma that's attached to religions. And I'm not saying there's always truths in all of the religions, and I, I know that. Um, but we get caught up in the dogma of it. And God, you know, is a judging um, person that, you know, apparently can wipe out the world when he feels that we are not listening or, you know, behaving as he wants us. I mean, it's, it's a very heavy energy to, and I, you know, I remember, I remember grade five. And at that time we would get, um, a new Testament. I think it was grade five. It might've been earlier, but I remember being so excited about getting the new Testament and taking it home and starting to read it and go, well, that's not Jesus. <laughs> like I was so clear that it was like, well, this isn't the energy that I connect with, but it's <laughs> funny, right? But we do, we have this image of the dogma that's attached to God, but also this story of me is very heavily laced with our beliefs and our emotions. And I'm not quite sure where we started with this conversation, but I like where it's going. <laughs> yeah. No, it's terrific. And I, I mentioned that in the book too, that it's funny how, you know, the, whether it's the, the, the conditional, conditionally loving God, the, I love you if you do this for me, God, or the, 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 I am a selfish God or, 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 or uh, fear, fearing God, etc. Um, I love it when people say I'm a God, I'm a God fearing Christian. I'm like, wow. <laughs> exactly. And notice that a lot of these characteristics are very much like the ego that manufactured this character. It's an individual. It's often a male. Um, it's often very, very domineering and something to be feared. And the love is not unconditional, but conditional. And, that contrasts with the other side of, 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 we can talk about Christian religion, which, of course, the Jesus um, path, which is supposed to be unconditionally loving and is not so focused on this fearful, powerful aspect of God, um, which, is, which has been a wonderful introduction to spirituality for the past few thousand years. But nevertheless, this other aspect of God uh, still exists in us and uh, makes us quite fearful when, as I point out in the book, ultimately, God is formless awareness. It has no form. God has no body. God has no gender, no sandals, no beard. It, it is the source of all things, and it is all things. We collectively all are God, including the walls and the tables. Everything is consciousness. Everything is awareness. This we can call God. But it doesn't mean that God is just some inanimate object separate from us, because really there is no separation. And nothing is really inanimate. Everything possesses this vibrantly alive consciousness. And that is what ultimately God is. And it is part of who we are. It is, it is ultimately is what we are in essence. And we are the unique expressions dancing on the surface of this, so to speak. Right. I, I, do, I do love, I believe it was Neil Donald Walsh who said, you know, if we were to look at the world from, you know, a higher perspective and... Um, just open up to seeing everything, you would really just see one energy. And yes, there would be brighter lights at some points, but it's really just one energy. And, and that's really what we're saying here. And the underlying tone of that energy is peace or unconditional love, which we really don't have enough examples of. But, you know, mostly 
the ego and um, the way organized religion has been created is to control and manipulate and to keep us in that resistance and that suffering. I mean, I'm amazed how much we feel it's okay to judge and to blame and to get caught up in these perceptions that I, I wrote an article on perceptions just I believe it was last month. Um, I mean, we we get so caught up in what we believe happened when we know that if a hundred people were to see the same thing, there would probably be a hundred different um, perceptions of what happened. We just we seem to think that that's the identity, that's the story of me, that's what really happened, and it's just it's just this false. Um, story based on this, what we believe happened to us. Like we kind of identify with, I don't know, my story was always around abandonment and betrayal. So I would view things that happened from that particular filter. And I could see, you know, everything in that filter. And when I could finally get to that place of trying to see a bigger picture or knowing that I would never be able to see the bigger picture and just letting it go, whether that's through forgiveness or just opening up the heart. I mean, it's, it's that story that we get stuck in. It's those perceptions that we think are real and we get so, I don't know, addicted to it. We get so, it's just, it becomes our identity. Absolutely. And of course, one of the basic reasons this happens is because when we identify with this voice in the head, um, we believe it's who we are. If we were to stop indulging in this incessant thinking and emotional reacting, because emotional reactions, emotions are like the response to largely to the thoughts in our head. If we stop doing this at some level, we feel we would cease to exist. Right. And so it, we put itself perpetuating this, incessant thinking in the head but what is the mental software designed to do It's designed to help us function in the world It's designed to make distinctions to categorize to judge and so we can't help but be judgmental when we are always operating from this mental software and this is the key to learning how to live in the now live in the now and rediscover our deeper nature which quiets the mind and like magic all of a sudden, this judgmental aspect of us also quiets down because the mental software has ceased operating. Yeah. And yet we don't know what that... I mean, we've all had examples of it, but we don't realize how simple it is. And yes. your off switch, which I love the title of that uh, <laughs> that chapter, is really the body. Yes. And... It's our resistance to the now moment that really caused this discomfort that we have. And then our addictions happen to sort of ease our suffering, except it's really, really only temporary. Yes, absolutely. The body is the off switch. Um, Our sensations, the body itself is always in the present moment. And so it's been mentioned before and described before that the key to um, shutting off 
this incessant thinker that we identify with this me character in the head is to inhabit the present moment, to live in the now, to be in the moment. And people say, well, how do we do that? I'm trying, I'm trying right now to be in the moment. But we often, when we do that, we're making an effort and we're making an effort with this very thinker, this very uh, ego that is we're trying to quiet down. And so the other the other way of doing it, of course, is the key way of doing it is entering the body, turning our attention to the sensations in our body, because these sensations can only happen now. And when we do so, this naturally quiets the incessant thinking in the head, and we begin to notice space, a space around our thoughts and emotions. We begin to notice uh, an awareness that is behind all of that, and we, over time, begin to realize we are this awareness. We are not these thoughts and reactions and fears that we have going on in our head. Right. Um, I like how you talk about the heart being the doorway. Um, I, I took a course called Embraining, which is multiple the multiple brains, and the proof that science has proven that um, the neurons exist, obviously, in our brain, but yes. in our hearts and in our guts. And the gut is all about protection, so that's why the gut, I mean, that part of us that is, you know, about safety and our gut intuition is all around, you know, that. And the gut, the neurons, there's there's as many neurons in our gut as there is in a cat or dog's brain, which is um, 500 million. Our, of course, our, our head brain has like a hundred billion, but our heart, the neurons in our heart are between 30 and 120,000, 30,000 and 120,000. Um, what I find fascinating about that is one, we can actually lose our heart's neurons if we don't actually go into our heart and our ego has put up all these walls of protection, which of course it does, but we can also get it back when we actually start to move into our heart and you know so many people say you know get out of your head and move into your heart and I I like to practice that not always effective but it is it certainly is an aspect that I find um, so important because it's it's such a small it's such a small thing comparatively to the others yet the electromagnetic force of our heart is a hundred thousand times stronger than our brain and our gut. Like it, it's amazing how this little brain is so much more powerful in the world than our head and our gut. Yes, as I mentioned in the book, that it's um, one of the primary portals through which we access um, this intelligent awareness um, that is so intelligent can create the brain, intelligent enough to create the universe and we can have access to this uh, intelligence, and it can eventually inform our thinking. So it is also uh, something very powerful and practical for us as individuals and as a planet when we access the deeper awareness that we are beyond our thinking. Yeah. Um, and, and yes, we can see the heart and the gut and the brain, as I say in the book, are really part of a brain system. We can think of the entire body as you know, part of a brain system as opposed to just individual uh, pieces. But the heart is very powerful because when we can rest in the heart, the rest of the body often will follow the heart's lead and also relax and surrender 
into the moment. And that's the power of the heart, too, in terms of our practice, as learning to surrender um, to the now and cease the mental resistance we have to uh, this moment. Yet our ego, it's funny because we we throw around sayings like a broken heart. And because we can identify with this saying, um, that's when we find all the resistance and the protection that is around it. But really the heart um, on its own is so much more powerful than anything else. It really doesn't need protected. And if we could actually identify that, you know, what we think we're doing to help is actually hindering us, um, we'd probably go a lot further. But also I loved how you mentioned, you know, three things to be conscious of. And the third thing I I was having problems with, because I've always done deep breathing, but it was actually just, of course, because I had problems with understanding it. Um, it was just last week that um, one of the therapies that I do, he identified that um, my diaphragm was restricted. Mm. But I love how, please mention the three things that if you could be aware of, it would allow you to be in your body and to open your heart more. Yes. Um, I mentioned in general the importance of unclenching muscles throughout the body um, <clears throat> because when we, are, when we have uh, extra tension in the body, what I call unnecessary tension, that actually acts as fuel for the mind to continue thinking and reacting and, and, and uh, keeping us unaware of this moment and it dulls our awareness of our body as well. And three of the primary areas I focus on, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> um, are the, uh, the jaw, to relax the jaw, relax the shoulders and relax the solar plexus slash diaphragm area because notice that they all surround the heart area. And if we go throughout our day and notice, well, well, I'm just driving in the car. Why is my jaw tense? What purpose does it serve? It serves no purpose. It's there probably because you're also thinking about something else while you're driving about something that happened in the day or that you're going to have to do later. And you get tense about that. And the body responds by tensing up some part of the body. And very often it is the muscles around the heart area that get tensed up. And if we can reverse that by throughout the day being mindful of, what's happening in my jaw, what's happening in my shoulder area and the solar plexus diaphragm area, and we can relax those areas. We can relax the heart area, and when we do, the rest of the body tends to follow and relax. We can inhabit our body more easily with our attention, enter the now more easily, and we also open ourselves up to that sense of interconnection with all things, which is the source of love and compassion. When I was reading that, I just, I kept kept my awareness on I I know my shoulders it's it's been an area I've always kind of um, held tension and I know a lot of people you know feel they hold the weight of the world on their shoulders which is a terrible saying because it makes us do it <laughs> but I never I never I never got the whole jaw part until I read that chapter and I was like wow I do that all the time. <laughs> now, the solar plexus was still kind of like a mystery to me because usually I, I, you know, I learned how to do deep breathing, you know, at a relatively young age. So um, 
it's something that I've always done. But as women um, and as anybody, I mean, if you spend a lot of time on a computer or spend a lot of time sitting, which most jobs um, are that, um, our posture kind of pushes, like our shoulders kind of go down and we kind of cave in. And um, I was actually given some exercises to stretch out my diaphragm so that, um, you know, that tension wouldn't be there. And I was like, wow, I wanted to know, you know, because I can, yes, I can put my awareness on my solar plexus, but that wasn't necessarily helping my diaphragm. And I didn't know that my diaphragm was a problem either. But I just, it was amazed that, you know, again, really simple things um, could allow you to to become more aware and use your body as the off switch. <laughs> Absolutely. I mentioned just it's not an accident that things like uh, laughing or crying, for example, mm. or even orgasm. Yawning. Um, yes, yawning as well as mentioned. These things tend to get our diaphragm buckling and everything loosened up and tend to help, help us open up our heart and surrender to what is happening, immerse ourselves, immersing ourselves in our bodily experience. And these practices do the same thing. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. I, like I said, this is an excellent book because it gets really simple and easy to identify um, some of the areas. And it just, it was just something that I wasn't aware of. And now I am. So I appreciate that. It's, it's, I just, yeah, I really like how easy you've made this to, to for people to, uh, I mean, it really is simple. There's no, nothing about this process is supposed to be difficult. We just make it difficult because we like to keep the story of me and we like to keep this identity when we don't realize it because we always we always think that things are happening to us. Like we get stuck in this you know, why did this happen to me again? Like we get stuck in this identity of the filters that we've put around our beliefs and our emotions and, you know, the suffering part. Like we, we make this journey so hard. It's, it's so sad, (laughs) so serious and so hard. Exactly why the book was written is to hammer home some of the the basic points that, that shouldn't be forgotten about inhabiting uh, our bodies to enter the now and end our suffering because there is so much suffering and because we do make it um, so difficult. I also liked how you talked about, I mean, (laughs) it's thinking's the problem. So it doesn't matter whether it's positive thinking or affirmations. We're still kind of, we're still thinking. (laughs) Yes. And it's still not going to (laughs) help. But that's what we do. Like, it's like we, it's like we, contemplation it I can be a meditative process but thinking we just get lost in it yes we get lost in the poor me we get lost in trying to analyze it and you know where did it begin what's the core you know uh, it never helps (laughs) it goes to show that really that there is a primordial urge or desire to get to the to the source of things but this thinker, this thinking me can never do so. We can only experience the direct source of things because our true nature can never be thought. It can only be felt, a direct experience. Um, 
our thoughts, our words can point to a direct experience, like go pick up that lemon or, and taste it, but any words describing the taste of a lemon will never compare to the direct experience of tasting the lemon. And so, it's, so the same is with experiencing our God nature, um, our um, undying awareness, our true nature. It is a direct experience and not something that can be thought, but it's understandable that the thinker will always look for answers and, and, and seek things out and try to break things down and why am I suffering and what's the problem. It can't help but do that, but of course uh, it won't solve the problem because the fact that it is constantly running is the problem. Constantly running and we're not even conscious. Like we're yes. not, we're not, yeah, we're not consciously doing many things. Like it's, it's like our awareness. We think we're here right now yeah. and every, everyone listening, what is this guy talking about? I'm in my room or I'm in my car right now and I'm listening. Uh, I'm here. It's such a subtle filter, this, this thinker. Obviously, when things are very dramatic and we're, you know, we're up at, up at three o'clock in the morning and we're in, obsessing over something, it's more obviously that, obvious that we are in our heads, but it's actually happening all the time and the filter is so subtle, we're not aware that we are actually living in a virtual copy of this moment and inhabiting this abstract realm of thought all the time, even when we think we're fully here, when in fact our awareness of our body right now, even the people listening, they're probably only partially or peripherally aware of their bodies. Maybe only now that I'm mentioning, they're no noticing their breathing or noticing they can feel their feet or any tension. What happens when you begin to inhabit the now is you are able to feel your body and a, this vibrant aliveness um, beneath the, the surface sensations of the body all the time. You're able to feel a peace and a subtle joy and a sense of um, compassion and love pretty much all the time, at the very least in the background, regardless of what's happening at the surface of reality, because it is who we truly are. And when we get become uh, more sensitive and tuned into what's happening in the body, we can experience this all the time. And it reassures us that everything is okay. And even when things aren't going great, and we are soothed and reassured by the sense of relief and peace, and that we are, we simply are. Hmm. Yes, I liked one of the things you said about experiencing a oneness. We can never have peace. We can only be peace. Yes, it is the, the mind's, of course, tendency to uh, want to acquire things to um, fulfill itself. But all it can do is try to collect experiences and objects and uh, um, any kind of form to try to fill itself up to feel whole, but it is the impediment to the wholeness that we already are. That's why we can never have peace and hold it in our hands as some concept to play with and something we can consume, etc. It is only something we can just rest into and uh, inhabit and realize we already are it. And it's already, like I said, the room you're in now is saturated with peace. It's just a question of tuning into it. Peace has always been here. It will always be here. It's just waiting for us to notice it. Hmm. You mentioned the quest for justice. And we kind of get um, really attached to that. <laughs> yes. You know, we're very much a victim mentality society where... You know, there's all these support groups to help, 
you know, people <laughs> that are victims and, you know, we have, you know, a judicial system, we have uh, jails, we have ways to, at least we're, we're not quite as bad as the U.S. in suing, but I think we're getting, you know, pretty close. But we have all of these, it's like we... We have judged a situation and we continue to judge situations because we're looking for justice. We, we, it's like we believe, we believe we're right to have justice. Mm, yes. Um, part of the desire for justice, of course, it is a desire for some kind of fairness, some kind of equity. There is a, a, a subconscious or an unconscious sense that there is a sense of equity and balance in the universe, and ultimately there is, but it's not something we can manufacture at the level of one mind, one thinker dealing with another thinker, and, and their uh, hurt, painful past and your painful past, and trying to reconcile that at the level of thinking and the level of, of laws. Um, people commit acts violent acts, cruel acts, behave selfishly because they don't know who they are. And that sounds kind of unusual, but that is um, really the problem on the planet at an individual level and a collective level. We don't know what we're doing. Forgive them for they know not what they do. This is a very old saying. And it's true. If we don't know who we are, then that means we are operating from this ego. This incessant thinker is not just incessantly thinking. It is... Uh, easily, easily feels victimized. Easily feels that it's it's losing something, and it needs to acquire things and exploit others to to get things, to feel in control, to feel safe. But it never feels stable. It never feels secure and safe. It never feels like it has enough, and it justifies and rationalizes things involving hurting others to try to stop this endless sense of dissatisfaction and incompleteness. And it never will. And we we end up also because of this mental filter, distorting the, our views of others and it makes us capable of doing things because we're not really aware of the, um, who they are and or who we are. And this is the, the essence of why we end up hurting each other and then judging each other. And it doesn't solve anything because in the end, if the peace we want has to come first by realizing that we are peace and essence and that everyone else is as well and that we are all interconnected and that is what will prevent us from wanting to hurt others and that will create a natural um, equity and natural sense of justice in the world. Yeah. It's just we're so caught up with this and it's so detrimental to us and our, you know, our own sense of well-being like i mean it it creates so much tension and suffering and i love the chapter about sick of suffering i mean we all this resistance that we create it it's so exhausting i mean it's we i mean that's probably the one area that helps us stop this because we are so we're so exhausted all the time like this is what kind of creates the seeker because we know there has to be something better than this. Yes, and so I ask all the listeners out there, have you really had enough of your suffering? Yeah. Because we we make it part of our victim story. If I can't have a story of success, well, then at least I have this tragic story that maybe one day they'll make a movie out of and everyone will 
eulogize me for living this very difficult life. And, and so we'll, the, the, the thinking mind will come up with any excuse to hold on to its pain and hold, hold on to its suffering. And there is a point, though, however, on the, the spiritual path, what often happens is we get so sick of it, we decide, I'm going to drop this story as well. I've had it. I'm going to find the courage just to do these practices no matter what happens. I'm going to go into the body and feel what's there. Because it is true that when we begin um, our meditative practices, our, our introspective practices and in feeling the body, things that we have repressed do rise to the surface, and we're scared of these things. But the more we do it, the more we realize there's nothing to be scared of. It's all just energy under pressure. And by attending to it, without judging it, without reacting to it, without commenting on it, simply feeling the pure sensations, we create space around this pressure and release it. And so we're actually releasing our emotions, releasing our past pain. And the more we do it, the more confidence we, ha confidence we have that we can come back and do this again and again and not hold on to our suffering. Yeah. Yeah, it's, like I said, this book offers some really simple ways to bring ourselves into more consciousness and to allow ourselves, you know, this beautiful release to, to really get out of this egoic, story but I mean it's this story I mean I'd love to just do a whole show on the story of me because it's such a mm, heavy piece that we we think we have to identify with and yet you know it is the part of us that is our suffering I also want to mention the addiction thing because I think a lot of us um, a lot of us have it well I think everybody has addiction we have addiction in different things um, some people get addicted to caffeine because they need I don't know the energy I don't I, <laughs> I mean it's it's caffeine alcohol drugs sex food I mean we have all of these addictions and we think we have no control over them and we think well, we're thinking. I mean, that's the problem, right? But really, our motivation is to feel good. And as you say, our motivation is to feel God. Yes, absolutely. Ultimately, if we're going to describe God as anything, because it really can't be described in, in words, because words are simply forms, and God is formless awareness. It is also that sense, that feeling of good, feeling of goodness, the good beyond good and bad, so to speak. Um, it is the feeling of that we ultimately are always looking for a feeling of fulfillment of completion of satisfaction of love which is the recognition that we are all connected and all one it's that feeling of coming home and that feels good and that is what we are looking for and of course when we are caught up in our thinking as we as most of the planet 99% of the planet is it seeks out in the, the world of form, the only world that it knows, because it does not understand or it cannot understand our formless realm. Only you can through direct experience. It will seek out all kinds of pleasurable experiences <clears throat> or substances to fill itself up and also to cover up this feeling of suffering. It is doing the best it can. We can say, oh, poor little thinker, poor little ego. It's doing the best that it, it, that it can. 
but it will never succeed because it itself, the, this incessant uh, addictive uh, thinking that we have, we are essentially addicted to thought um, because we've made an identity out of it. And, and so we incessantly keep thinking. So in a sense, we are perpetuating this me and my story character's existence by thinking. And it is the original addiction that is the source of all other addictions. And when we cease addiction to thought, when we begin to rest in the spacious awareness around our thoughts and realize we are that spacious awareness, thoughts quiet down and our compulsion for more, our compulsion for fulfillment and satisfaction also cease because we realize we are those things already. And there is no separation or distance between what we want and what we already are. Yeah. The end of the wait, that part of us that needs to accept things as they are instead of what we believe they, what we believe they are. Um, but it's also, you know, this part of us that think we're waiting for life to begin. I, yes, it's, you've brought up such key areas to, delve into it. I mean, it's almost like every chapter could be its own show. And I'm very excited to have you back definitely to do the, you know, the experience, the experiencing part so that we can bring in the practices. But I mean, it's all so important. (laughs) It's my pleasure uh, to come back. And and just to add, Laurie, that for those that are interested in in, uh, getting the book now, it it is in a soft launch mode available at namastepublishing.com. I guess, I don't know if you can put a link up I for will. that. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yes, the, the official launch where it can be purchased in stores um, is in mid-October. But for those that want to get a, 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 you know, a head start on the exercises uh, right now, it is available right now. Cool. Christopher, this has been an amazing talk. I am so, I'm so honored to have had this opportunity. I'm so glad I followed my intuition when I got the email from Kathy. She hasn't sent me, you know, I haven't, we haven't talked in a long time. Um, but, you know, this is your, you're a blessing because it's, it's really simple and easy to understand. And I can't wait to delve more into it. So expect more interviews with uh, Christopher because I think, um, it's just so important. Well, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. And thank you to everyone listening. And before we stop, let me just say to all our listeners, remember, you are peace. And if you want to feel that peace right now, return your attention to the moment, go into your body, unclench your muscles, feel your breathing, and that begins the process. Beautiful. I can't wait to actually get a meditation out of you. So we're going to do more of this. And and we've been getting to the heart of what matters. You're listening to News for the Heart with Christopher Papadopoulos. And uh, you will definitely hear more from him. So thank you again, Chris. Oh, my pleasure, Lori. And thank you to everyone else as well listening. Have a question for Lori and want to be on the next News from the Heart show? Drop us a line via instant feedback at bmajor.org. News from the Heart is brought to you by Intuitive Soul and is produced by Major Radio for Clear Channel's iHeartRadio and bmajor.org. 